Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Burke, and tonight joined by our wonderful producer, Jennifer Chisholm. Jennifer, say hi. Hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. We are happy to have you. This was a great episode. Our guest tonight, Dr. Rebecca Sedun, here to discuss systemic lupus erythematosus. But before we get started, Jennifer, do you, remi- do you mind reminding us about our show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical polls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. So we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Rebecca Sudun. She is an adult and pediatric rheumatologist at Duke who completed her MedPeds residency and adult and pediatric rheumatology fellowships at Duke, and who now focuses on lupus across the lifespan. Today, Dr. Sudun will teach us when to have clinical suspicion for lupus, how to initiate a laboratory evaluation for patients with suspected lupus, some of the serious complications that can result from lupus in children, and how residents or med students can add a SLADI score to your progress note to impress your neighborhood rheumatologist. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to read. No, the SLADI, I think that was great. I, the SLADI was what started this up, but this is going to be, this is what... This is the pearl that the interns should be waiting for in the episode. Learn how to impress the rheumatologist calculating a disease activity index. Without further ado, let's get to it. If trying to remember all those autoimmune antibodies is throwing you for a loop, this is the episode for you. It's like lupus. I got it. Loop like lupus. Excellent. We're excited to to start this episode. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Sedun. Thank you for coming on to the show. We're excited to have you on the Cribsiders. We're excited to learn about you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, because we're an informal group, we talked about this, but is it okay if we call you Rebecca through the episode? Because we're, we're friends now, right? Absolutely. My last name is also deceptively hard to pronounce, so feel free. All right. <laughs> Easy enough. So, Rebecca, well, I would love to know more about you. The listeners would love to know more about you. Can you give us just kind of a general one-liner to describe yourself and let our listeners get to know you a little bit better? Sure. How about a physician scientist who loves to work with adolescents and young adults, uh, wishes she could go whitewater rafting more often, and cannot spell to save her life? Nice. Uh, to not spell. that I feel like this, uh, like the spell check has made me completely uh, unable to do anything without electronics. To uh, Ophthalmology has always been one that's given me a hard time. I've never, there's always, I always miss an My H somewhere. My father's an ophthalmologist. Well, I bet you're better than I am then. One of the few I can do. <laughs> yeah. We're also very excited to have another MedPeds uh, person. We, you know, uh, are obviously a pediatric podcast, but do have some MedPeds roots. So especially in pediatric rheumatology, it's great to have you. Maybe I'll ask one other question and then Jennifer, I'll turn it over to you. I, not to start with kind of a humbling question, but I will start with my favorite question, which is learning about other people's uh, overcoming adversity and failures. I think, you know, medicine, a lot of times everyone has imposter syndrome and it's straight to kind of normalize failures and setbacks and talk about how we learn from them. And so I was hoping to see if you might be willing to share a failure or a favorite failure and maybe what you've learned from it or how it's, you know, gotten to you where you are today as a very successful clinician scientist, whitewater rafter. 
oh, I think it's uh, potentially unfair to call me a whitewater rafter. There, there's a failure. I wish I could do it much more often. haven't done it in a <laughs> solid decade. But um, there are so many, it is hard to know where to start. <laughs> I think, you know, whether it's the first major one I can think of, not getting into the college I thought I wanted to go to, or more recent ones, um, you know, writing grants that take blood, sweat, tears, and weeks of your life and not getting them. I feel like the lesson that I have learned is pretty universal, regardless of the the failure itself, which is that really of resilience. So you have your moment to grieve the loss. You introspect for a moment and hopefully can learn a lesson. But more than anything, it's that when you try the next time, you don't hold back. You, in fact, apply yourself even harder the next round. Love it. Very inspirational. Off to a great start. This is wonderful. Jennifer, you want to do a question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is it okay if I do another one of the sort of getting to know you questions? Of course, yeah. I was wondering, and this is sort of maybe relevant to my Christmas reading list, but um, is there a book you can recommend that you feel that maybe physicians in particular should read? Sure. Um, I really love Jerome Groupman's How Doctors Think. I think it's a fun, easy read. And I am a nerd obsessed with cognitive errors, but I actually think it's extremely enlightening and will help everybody think about the medical decisions that they, they make on a daily basis. Yeah, I like it. I think also for rheumatology, I'm sure there's a lot of like different biases and, and things that come up with a complicated diagnosis and, and clinical decision making. So a great wreck. Let's jump into some let's just jump into some material. Let's get into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep so you don't have to go to the grocery store and interact with people after a long day in the hospital. It's America's number one meal kit for tired doctors, advanced practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, medical students, and even listeners like you. And you don't just want to save time, you want to save money too. And that's money that can go to big things like your student loans that you really should still be paying down. In fact, HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout orders. You can skip the snowy schlep to the grocery store and stock up on snacks, sides, desserts, and more at HelloFresh Market. Simply add these staples and sweets to your weekly order and they'll arrive at your doorstep along with your meals. Oh man, meals and snacks. That's right. And at HelloFresh, you can get delicious food for any dietary preference or restriction. Just last month, my family and I were able to get quick, tasty, easy vegetarian meals delivered right to our doorstep. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Cribsiders21 and use code Cribsiders21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Cribsiders21. 21 meals. Wow. What do you think, Jennifer? Do you want to start us off with our first case from Cashlet Children's? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we have Mallory Resch. She is a previously healthy 11-year-old girl who presents to her primary care doctor with an eight-week history fatigue. Um, on review of her vital signs, she's also had some weight loss. Initially, Mallory's parents attributed this to her being overscheduled with extracurriculars. However, they became concerned when they realized that Mallory had lost about five pounds. Mallory's mother adds that during the last couple of months, Mallory has had hair loss and on some days her forehead has felt a bit hot to the touch. Mallory has not had any rashes or joint pain, although she notes that her hands feel stiff in the morning. So uh, this is a patient with some symptoms that have sort of lasted a while and some red flag symptoms. Uh, so I guess I wanted to open with, you know, when should we really start thinking about lupus and, and how do these patients tend to present, especially in pediatrics? 
it's a tricky question of when to start thinking about lupus, because it's certainly the, you hear hoof beats, don't think first of the zebra, which would be the lupus. So this woman is presenting, this young woman is presenting with uh, weight loss and fatigue, and the differential for that's going to be extremely broad, right, ranging from everything from depression to malignancies, indolent infection, cardiac endocrine anomalies, um, inflammatory diseases, both rheumatologic and non-rheumatic. So lots of things uh, to be considering in her particular circumstance. Um, I agree with you with weight loss. We know that this is something on the more significant end. And so I certainly would start with a little bit more uh, history. I want to know if she has any objective fevers as well. So making sure that the family has a thermometer um, and maybe can do a fever diary for a week to help us understand that. I definitely think a starting point, I would probably be getting a CBC on her, which can probably help direct where we're going to go next. Um, and f- inflammatory markers would be also a great starting point, I think, for her. And then figuring out what other systems and symptoms she might have, which will guide you further. And can I ask, I often think of lupus as like a chronic relapsing condition, where if someone comes in with joint pain, you know, if a, a child comes in with two days of knee pain, lupus is pretty low on my di- differential. I imagine there's, you know, acute exacerbations that can come in as flares and that can maybe be the first diagnosis. But typically in the presentation, is it more these chronic or subacute patients that we're seeing or is it pretty acute, just gross inflammation everywhere? This is when we start uh, making the diagnoses for, for kids. It's interesting. Lupus is an extremely heterogeneous disease. And so people who have milder symptoms may have chronic symptoms for a much longer period of time than the cases that are more like a bomb that sort of explodes over a period of weeks. You're right, not two days, but I wouldn't be suspicious of anything that's been going on for hours to days. But sometimes it'll be weeks, sometimes it'll be months or longer. Beautiful. Oh, yep. So I was sort of wondering, sort of taking this case of you know, Mallory Rush, who has sort of a few symptoms that are a bit suspicious, but you know she's presented to a primary care doctor um, and the symptoms are somewhat nonspecific, as you say. What do you think a general pediatrician or a primary care doctor should do to begin to evaluate Mallory? I think first and foremost, a good history. So she's having hand pain. What does that mean? Where is she experiencing pain? Is it in the joints specifically, which would increase my index of suspicion for arthritis and other rheumatic conditions that can present with arthritis? Is it worse in the mornings? And that, again, really increases your concern for inflammatory conditions. Um, Understanding the rashes themselves and then digging further. So we'll talk later, of course, about the classification criteria for lupus. But it's hard for a non-rheumatologist to memorize them. Uh, Nobody should feel like they need to memorize them. But if you know where you can go look them up, uh, what's wonderful about them is they will guide your history. You will look through the list of things and be like, oh, serositis. I should ask, do you have pain when you take a deep breath? Um, They will give you the list of things that you should be looking for in a physical exam. And they will give you the list of, of labs that you should be ordering to help with the diagnosis. See, one of my favorite things about this podcast is it gives me an opportunity to say how I approach something and then have someone much smarter than me tell me how I should be doing this. And I tend to think of all autoimmune and rheumatology almost in a bucket of inflammatory disorders and an individual coming in with chronic issues. I start thinking if there's multiple nonspecific symptoms and if it's chronic, maybe you know question mark room, which I'm sure is the most annoying consult description. But I guess my first question is, is that reasonable? And then the second question I always tend to lean towards is, is there a family history? Is there anyone else that has a rheumatological disorder? Is that actually super helpful? Like, Do most people have a family history or not necessarily not that great of a diagnostic test? 
positive family history will you know, give you a higher post-test probability, but a negative family history would certainly not rule out lupus or any other rheumatic disease. There's plenty of patients who do not have a positive family history. I did, I did a terrible host where I gave you a double-barreled uh, a question of two questions. So the grouping of inflammatory dis- disorders, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that that's reasonable. They do tend to be chronic. Uh, There's some waxing and waning, but for the most part, until they get treated, they tend to progress. So when you have a history of people who have something that happens for three days and then goes away for six months and that happens for three days, that doesn't feel particularly rheumatic. I guess I know the diseases well enough that they don't feel like the black box of nonspecific symptoms. Um, And I think that the more that you can uh, drill down and understand how each of them manifests, the easier it can be to recognize. So the difference between arthralgia, pain in a joint, and arthritis, inflammation in a joint, as indicated by either swelling or warmth or morning stiffness or tenderness on the joint line. So People can have lots of joint pains, and it would not make me think about rheumatic illnesses. But arthritis, and this patient has stiffness in the mornings um, that gets better with use, that is definitely something that would point me towards rheumatic illnesses. And then the other thing, I'll just ask the question (laughs) since I get it a lot. Uh, You know, people say, well, what about like the rheumatology panel? And they try to order labs that they think are the rheumatology panel. And I'm always like, what What is a rheumatology panel? (laughs) 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 I had a completely different lab test for the different diseases. And, you know, sometimes two or three diseases are on your differential. And so you might have some overlapping lab orders, but there's no fixed set of labs that you were to order for everything. As an example, um, whether it's JIA, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or adult rheumatoid arthritis, um, the presence or absence of an ANA is not at all helpful for the diagnosis there. There's no increased Hmm. likelihood of having an ANA in those conditions. So they do not help you diagnose it. Whereas an ANA is extremely helpful uh, for lupus in a couple of related conditions. So it sounds like the ANA, if you're thinking lupus specifically and not so much juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis or some other autoimmune disease, the ANA is a relatively reasonable part of the initial workup. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. So the most important fact to know offhand is that 15 to 20% of healthy children will have a positive ANA. So I generally discourage people from ordering an ANA when they have a low suspicion for lupus. It's one of the, it's on a list of 40 things that could be going on right now. If you order the ANA one out of five times, it will be positive. And then both you and the family are frightened that the patient has lupus. Uh, So because somebody has had knee pain for three days is definitely not a good reason to order the ANA. But a case like this that's been going on for weeks and progressive um, and concerning, I usually say if you're going to order the ANA because you have a high enough index of suspicion, then you should probably order more than just the ANA, more of the labs that are uh, representative of making a diagnosis. And specifically, it seems like those labs would be guided based on the symptomatology or physical exam findings that are consistent with the algorithms or evaluative criteria of each of those independent inflammatory disorders, which are not all one black box like I originally thought, but actually discrete diagnoses, which I'm already learning a ton. So this is great. Is that safe? Is that that reasonable? It's kind of that's going to be guiding what, what antibodies you're ordering? Absolutely. Very much so. And in this case, if she has a malar rash, which this patient doesn't, but a malar rash would make you think both of lupus and dermatomyositis. Those would be the, you know, the two paths I would go down. And maybe just to kind of close the loop on this question, when people talk about the rheumatology panel or the autoimmune panel, you know, I imagine it's an ANA, double-stranded DNA, rheumatoid factors, you know, all these lab tests that we have ordered that we think about that are associated with one of these. Can you talk about what are the 
consequences of doing kind of this broad shotgun approach? Like, why not just order all of that? And then if, you know, the CCP is positive, we call it rheumatoid arthritis and we're done. What's the downside of kind of doing the shotgun laboratory approach in a rheumatology patient? Great question. I think the the first problem is that it's expensive. Um, many of these lab tests will be hundreds of dollars. And actually with the autoantibodies for antiphospholipids, it can be thousands of dollars. Uh, so unnecessary costs. And then you have to understand the sensitivity and specificity of each of them. And so uh, very few of them are 100% specific. And so you get a, essentially a false positive and kind of send you down the wrong path that doesn't align with the symptomatology. And then there's actually a lot of overlap diseases. <laughs> so you can have a positive CCP. Actually, CCP itself is, is quite specific. So probably not a good example. An RF, you could have a positive RF in the instance of lupus. Sometimes we call it rupus. You can have a positive RF <laughs> if you have endocarditis. Uh, you can have a positive RF in Sjogren's. And so the antibody in isolation without the right constellation of symptoms can be very challenging to interpret. And maybe if I can do one more follow-up and then Jennifer, it's all you because I, I do really love labs and ordering labs. Are there other things um, in addition to the CBC, which I think can help with a lot of those uh, criteria, are there other things that we should be checking organ functions or and other than inflammatory markers like you typically get a BMP or CMP or anything else? Yeah, I, I love inflammatory markers. I think they tell you a lot. Um, and obviously, they don't narrow exclusively to rheumatic disease. You're still going to have malignancy and infection and other conditions uh, on the list. Um, but I think they do give you a sense of how significant the process is. So I find that helpful. And I also recommend always both the ESR and the CRP. And if we have time, we can talk about sometimes where there's discordance in those two. And so that can be very helpful as a clue, in particular with lupus. Typically, there's a very elevated ESR and the CRP. CRP can be normal despite an ESR of 100, and that will be a helpful clue pointing in the direction of lupus. So I, I like that very much. CBC is also extremely helpful. Again, can point you towards other conditions as well, um, but we typically will see anemia of chronic disease in a lot of our uh, rheumatologic conditions, and so that's helpful. And cytopenias can be um, an autoimmune-mediated process, and so that's very meaningful in lupus and some related conditions. And I guess the one other thing I would say, in case it doesn't come up later in our conversation, so the ANA is an anti-nuclear antibody, right? It's an antibody to some antigen in the nucleus. So when you get a high titer ANA, not if it comes back 1 to 40, which is borderline, but if you have a blazingly positive ANA, the next question needs to be, well, what is the anti-nuclear antibody? And so you follow it up with the ENA panel, which stands for extractable nuclear antigens. And now that's going to specifically look for Rho, LA, RNP, SM, which stands for Smith. And I wish the double-stranded DNA came in that panel, but it usually does not. So you may have to add that on top, but you would want to get all of those to better understand what that ANA means. That's really helpful. And I'm curious, um, what are your thoughts on sort of how far along this kind of workup a primary care physician should go? Or, or do you sort of prefer sort of a children where there's some suspicion of lupus to be referred fairly early? Or do you think that it's good practice for us to be sort of doing all of this workup before referring? I think it is very dependent a, on how hard it is to get your patient in to see a pediatric rheumatologist. 
So if you have that at your fingertips and can get the patient seen in three or four days, probably save money by not doing a lot of workup and letting the rheumatologist guide that. If it's going to be three months or longer to get the patient in, I think it is to the patient's benefit to initiate that workup. And if it's concerning results, then it, you have a much easier time getting the patient in to say, look, we have a double-stranded DNA of a 1,000. Um, any pediatric rheumatologist will fit that patient in promptly. Yeah, I think this is great. And this is going to be a great episode, I think, to empower some of the primary care providers who don't have pediatric rheumatologies easily on hand, because I imagine most do not. Um, the, there are entire uh, states that don't have a pediatric rheumatologist. We, for a short time, I did residency at Hopkins, and for a short time, we were transferring people out of Hopkins Hospital because there was a lack of pediatric rheumatology available, which uh, they were very sheepish about and was not great. I think they do now. They're doing wonderful. They have um, several wonderful pediatric rheumatologists right now. Beautiful. Good, good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'd like to go back a little bit. We've talked about some of the presentations and uh, taking the history, looking at some of the physical exam findings, aligning with criteria, which we will get into. Um, but maybe from an epidemiology approach, we could touch base a little bit about, are there specific age groups that meet the illness script of lupus? Or can you talk a little bit about if there are different... Uh, uh, substrates of, of patients that we we tend to be a little more conscientious of thinking about autoimmune disease. Like I imagine, a, you know, a two week old baby less likely. Are there other distributions that we should be aware of? Great question. So uh, lupus is extremely rare before the age of nine, and the incidence really picks up with puberty. So. 11, 12, 13 is where you're going to start to see the increase in the slope, but the higher you go, the higher the rate um, on through the 20s and 30s. So you are more likely to see a 16-year-old than a 12-year-old and more likely an 18-year-old than a 16-year-old. Um, in terms of other uh, groups that are highest at risk, uh, so we definitely see a predominance for women. Before puberty, the ratio is roughly three to one once puberty sets on. It increases significantly for women and not significantly for men. So ultimately, in the pubescent period, it's about a, a nine to one ratio of women to men. And then interestingly, post-pubertal, it drops back down to five to one. And then we also know that there's certain races and ethnicities that have higher rates of lupus. So Black, African-American, and African races um, all have higher rates. Um, we also see Native American, Pacific Islander um, uh, rates are higher. Same is true for Latinx families. Um, the rates are higher. Um, and so we have an increased index of suspicion in those patients and we think more about it. Um, that said, I've seen the statistic that men and white individuals are less likely to get diagnosed early on and it may go on for longer because they don't meet the illness script. So I always like to go on record as saying, anybody can get lupus. So if it is like shouting in the face, this sounds like lupus, please take it seriously, regardless of age, creed, gender, etc. But you are going to uh, be more likely to work up a patient who has mild or moderate symptoms if they fit into the illness script that makes you most suspicious. And maybe if I can jump in, because I think this is a wonderful thing to talk about. And we really do try to have a focus in every episode with health disparities, racial disparities. And this is one that I think we talk a lot about, you know, race is not genetics and that, you know, race is a social construct and we need to be aware of that in medicine. And this is, you know, a prime example, I think, of the teaching where autoimmune rheumatology conditions are often associated with individuals identified as black. Is there a thought to, is it more, you know, ethnicity of regardless of their racial skin tone, certain people from certain areas 
uh, uh, have, you know, similar to the sickle cell response as a protection for malaria? Or are there other thoughts? Is there environmental um, exposures that we know that are linked to autoimmune diseases? Is there any thought of what's causing those kind of racial disparities potentially? Yeah. And so 100% agree, obviously, race is a social construct, but ancestry is not. Um, and that being more the genetic linkage as opposed to the social identity. And we do know that there are a lot of genes that are associated with lupus. And so, you know, in the long list of things, uh, defects in the apoptosis pathway, apoptosis clearance, etc. Um, and we we definitely see genetic predispositions and we see ancestral lines. And there's some really interesting uh, research. Uh, Dr. Lewandowski and others are looking at, particularly like in South Africa, trying to understand some of those genetic predispositions. Beautiful. Thank you. So getting back to sort of clinical presentation of lupus, you already mentioned, you know, that Mallory does not have a Mela rash, which is a very classic rash. I was curious in your clinical experience, how often do kids present with really classic rashes? And, and apart from a Mela rash, what are sort of rashes and skin manifestations that you see? Sure. Uh, somewhere around three quarters of patients will have a mucocutaneous finding, the most common of which is a malar rash, a distribution sort of butterfly rash across the bridge of the nose and the cheeks and sparing the nasolabial folds. It can affect the tips of the ears, the chin, the forehead as well. Other rashes are discoid rash is a pretty common one. Alopecia, so non-scarring hair loss, is actually a cutaneous finding of lupus that's pretty common. Oral and nasal ulcers, um, and it's important to know that those ulcers are often painless. So actually, if you ask the patient about it, they will say, no, I haven't had any oral or nasal ulcers. But if you look for them, the nasal ulcers are typically found along the septum, and the oral ulcers are most commonly on the hard palate. Um, and it's not necessarily what you think of as an ulcer. There's no crater. It can just be hyperemia or some redness or petechiae on the palate. And so we've kind of been hinting at these diagnostic criteria. And without doing a full episode on all of rheumatology, if we're concerned for lupus because of the mucocutaneous finding or or because we did do a shotgun and had a really elevated ANA or did due diligence and found, you know, Googled one of these criteria, uh, can you talk a little bit about how are we making the diagnosis of lupus? You know, how, how do you determine this person meets criteria for lupus? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. We actually use them often as diagnostic criteria, but technically they're classification criteria, meaning they're used to figure out who clearly has lupus to put into a lupus trial. And so there's a bit of a bent towards specificity. There are three criteria right now that are all being used actively. The 1997 ACR criteria has been around the longest and therefore has the most validation in pediatric rheumatology. It is also going to be the most specific in comparison to the 2012 SLIC criteria, which is a little bit more sensitive, which probably therefore is a little bit better when you're using it clinically. You're wanting to pick people up more so than be 100% specific for a trial. And then there is the ULAR ACR classification criteria, which came out in 2019, which has very high performance standards for specificity and sensitivity in adult populations. And we are still trying to understand how it's going to perform in the pediatric population. I see. And so in pediatric populations, is that typically not used or is it just one more data point where we'll do it and it's unclear how to interpret? It really just came out. And even in adult rheumatology, we're still trying to understand Fair. its implications. 
One of these things that I always look at, and it's a little overwhelming, is, you know, some of the physical exam findings that help diagnose these traits. And I want, you know, I always think of rheumatologists as being these physical exam experts. And so kind of before we start moving on into confirming diagnosis and treatment, any tips or ways that you think trainees can develop and hone some of these skill sets, especially when it's such a core part of this type of diagnosis? Unless you tell me it's not, just order the ANA and then we can move on. Yeah, definitely important. Definitely important. (laughs) Um, Two suggestions. So one is I recommend going to YouTube and looking up PGALS, P-G-A-L-S. It stands for Pediatric Gait, Arms, Legs, Spine. I think I got that right. And there are some great videos which will show you how to be very thorough and very efficient in a musculoskeletal exam. So it is an incredible head to toe, including the TMJ, like auscultating and feeling for tenderness in the jaw, every joint that you would be concerned about, but to be able to do it in a matter of minutes. Uh, So number one, I highly recommend people watch that and practice it. And number two is practice, practice, practice. In order to know when something is abnormal, you have to sort of know what the range of normal is. And so when patients come in for a well child exam, uh, trying to range their joints and kind of getting a sense of what, you know, how many degrees you should be getting on an elbow or a wrist so that when somebody has a loss of range of motion, which is probably the easiest physical exam skill for a non-rheumatologist to pick up, it can be really difficult to appreciate an effusion, a small effusion in a small joint in a chubby child. Um, But loss of range of motion is pretty reliable and reproducible. And so if you get to know what normal is, as soon as you feel abnormal, you'll recognize it. At what point in a trainee's career do you think they should buy one of those magnifying glasses to look at the fingernails? Is that that's like high level, right? That's the dermatoscope. I don't even own one. Dermatoscope. Yeah, yeah, they're great. They're expensive. If you get one, send me one. Um, yeah, yes. So they are useful primarily for looking at the small blood vessels that are right under the cuticle. So we call them the periungual blood vessels. You actually can use an ophthalmoscope set to green forty which will be its greatest magnification to observe those. And it's pretty good. If there's a significant abnormality, you will appreciate it. The trick is you have to get really close. So not only are you putting your eye to the ophthalmoscope, but then in terms of your focal length, you're, I don't know, about a centimeter, maybe even less off of the finger to be able to see it. So if we sort of get back to the case uh, with Mallory, um, so sort of further, sort of very thorough history and workup uh, by her primary care doctor reveals that she does in fact meet perhaps all three of the criteria's uh, definition for lupus. So, you know, in terms of clinical criteria, further history and exam reveals that she does indeed have some painless ulcers on her nasal septum and, um, you know, her hair loss is sort of non-scarring alopecia. Blood work reveals anemia, low platelets. She has a positive ANA, a very, very strongly positive uh, double-stranded DNA. And as part of her workup, her urine testing shows that she does have an elevated urine protein to creatinine ratio uh, of 700 milligrams per gram. So I was wondering, what is firstly a general approach to first-line treatment of newly diagnosed lupus? So we put essentially every patient on hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malarial, and there is good evidence that it reduces the risk of flare. 
So that is its primary job is once you get the lupus under control to prevent relapse. Therefore, sort of implied from that is the fact that it is rarely enough in pediatric rheumatology to control the flare that is already present. It's also important to know that the half-life of hydroxychloroquine is 50, five zero days. So in order to get to steady state takes many, many months. And so it's not going to do much for you up front. So if you need something that's going to work quickly because somebody is having significant disease manifestations, that's usually steroids. That's what's going to work the fastest. And pretty much anytime we are starting steroids, we are thinking already, what is our steroid sparing agent going to be? How am I going to get them off of the steroids? And that is usually an immunosuppressing medication. Uh, Sometimes we'll call them DMARDs, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Um, But we'll pick one based on what the patient's clinical manifestations are. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. If you thought Netflix had every show you could possibly want, wait until you check out Netflix with ExpressVPN. Do you miss being able to watch The West Wing? Well, you might be able to still watch it in another country with ExpressVPN. Is that really true? I don't know about The West Wing, but what is true is that the Netflix without ExpressVPN is like paying for a gym membership but only being able to use a treadmill. That's not how you get gains. ExpressVPN lets you unlock the metaphorical squat rack. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different server locations so you can gain access to thousands of news shows. This works with many other streaming services as well, like YouTube and more. So if I want to watch Spirited Away right now, I couldn't do that unless I had a one-way flight to Australia or use ExpressVPN with an Australia Netflix. I don't have to pay for that flight. I can check out Pulp Fiction on Canadian Netflix or Modern Family on the UK Netflix. These are real examples. If this wasn't actually partially written for us, would we have thought this is illegal? Probably, but it's not illegal. It has blazing fast speeds, is compatible with iPhones, laptops, smart TVs, and more, and encrypts your data so you can browse securely. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services or sharing your password with all your friends. You're only getting access to a fraction of the content. Get your money's worth or your cousin's money's worth at expressvpn.com slash cribsiders. Don't forget to use our link expressvpn.com slash cribsiders to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. You can watch the whole Modern Family series in three months. Three months. I see. I was curious as well, because you mentioned, you know, that lupus is sort of a chronic relapsing and remitting sort of disease. Um, Do you often, when you see sort of a patient and you're establishing a new diagnosis, do they often come in acute flare that you need to manage uh, initially? Or do they often sort of see you and you sort of follow that pathway that you mentioned of starting with hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, they're usually active when we first evaluate them and diagnose them. It doesn't tend to go away on its own. People might have good days, but it usually gets worse and worse until it reaches medical attention. And so I will sometimes explain to the patient that I I think of inflammation like a fire. And so our goal is to douse the fire, but not walk away when there are still embers burning or a little bit of smoke because it might come back. But we are trying to truly put the fire out. And if we can achieve total remission and then gradually back away by weaning the medication slowly, we stand a chance at coming off of medications, usually with the exception of hydroxychloroquine, which we will keep on in the background, and having the patient not flare as we remove those other medications. And as one sort of final question I was curious about with hydroxychloroquine, because I know it's such a mainstay of treatment, is are there children that can't be treated with it? And and if that's the case, sort of what's the option there? 
Sure. We always want to use it. I can't think of an instance where I haven't prescribed it initially. Um, there are patients, however, who can't tolerate it. Usually it's because of GI symptoms. It could because be because of significant prolongation of the QTC. But if you can't use any of the antimalarials, then you are relying more on, on the disease-modifying medications. And I so I have a question as far as how we monitor if the medication is working. And I think this ties in to some of the clinical classification criteria, although perhaps not, where you know, pulling up this slick, I think, is is one that I've seen people use where there's very straightforward clinical criteria, almost by organ system and immunologic criteria of um, specific lab work. And so are we measuring response to treatment by removal of those clinical findings, the immunological findings like the double-stranded DNA, both? Or how do we monitor treatment success? That's great. There's actually a disease activity measure called the SLEDAI, S-L-E-D-A-I, Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Disease Activity Index. And so it contains primarily clinical symptoms. That's really the focus of what we're trying to do is improve the clinical manifestations. It does include certain labs, and those are the labs that tend to vary with disease activity and or are clinically significant labs. So the double-stranded DNA is actually one of the few antibodies that we will continue to measure as we monitor patients. Once you've checked an ANA and it's positive, you never need to check an ANA again in that patient's life. And its fluctuations in its titer will not correlate with how the patient is doing. A double-stranded DNA, that's different. And we uh, hope it will go down as uh, patients get better. And many patients do follow that pattern. There are some patients who will maintain a low positive double-stranded DNA no matter what you do. And of course, you don't want to uh, chase that too much too far. But it does suggest disease activity. And so if it goes up, we get concerned about the potential for flare. The same is true for complement C3 and C4. Um, as that drops, we worry about flares. As that stabilizes, we are pleased. Um, and then certainly the CBC cytopenias, um, looking also at the urine, the urinalysis in particular, looking at that urine protein to creatinine ratio, also cells in the urine and creatinine. Those are probably the lab measures that I'm following the most. And so if we're seeing a patient in the hospital that's suspected of lupus, we can use some of these criteria to try to help guide the diagnosis. But it sounds like if we have an admission for someone that has a known lupus diagnosis, this uh, SLEDIA, the disease activity index, might be a good thing to write in the note before we consult rheumatology to have a general sense of where we're at. Is that safe to say that this is kind of a standard procedure for new admissions of people with underlying lupus? We would be blown out of the water if you wrote a sleet eye in a note. You will be an honorary rheumatologist. Done. We're, making, we're trying to make the interns look good. That, that's the goal of the show. And so uh, I think this, this makes a lot of sense. I'm pretty excited about it. That would be crazy amazing. Um, I'm going to make a note to do that in the future and, and try to impress some rheumatologists. And, and I want you to record the reaction of that pediatric rheumatologist for me. Perfect. We're setting people up for success. Because this is a reasonable, this is doable by a general practitioner for sure. If we can, I'd like to go a little bit into the weeds. And let's say we have a new patient who, let's say they're in a hospital setting for you know some type of lung manifestation or some really bad lupus flare. I, I don't know. Well, let's just say we have them, we have time to, to work with them. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when we say steroids, how high dose, how long are we doing the steroids? When you mentioned using DMARDs to specific symptoms, can you talk a little bit about which ones just so we can remind ourselves what a DMARD medication is and which ones might go where? Sure. This is definitely, when you're talking about steroid dosing, 
one of those phenomenon where if you put five rheumatologists in a room, you'll get six opinions because I'll have a different <laughs> opinion on Monday than I did on Tuesday. It really clearly matters, though, how severe the disease is. So for the most severe disease manifestations, major flare with lupus nephritis, inflammation of the brain, uh, CNS lupus or lupus cerebritis, those patients are going to get our highest dosing. So that's 1,000 milligrams of somebody's full size or 30 milligrams per kilo if they're a smaller child. And that is given usually daily for three, sometimes up to five days in a row. So, you know, sometimes I've heard it called the solubomb, solumedrol in very, very, very high doses. Mm. Um, and that is meant to reduce the interferon signature, to kill plasmacytoid dendritic cells, and to really, really calm inflammation. And it works quickly. And we couldn't continue that long term, of course. So then you're trying to put somebody on a maintenance dose. Uh, it's still a high dose if you're concerned about somebody. And it would be more on the order of one milligram per kilogram is the sort of dosing that you could send somebody out on. And then we're still trying to taper it. So when I think about how rapidly to taper a medication, I think about what I'm starting as the steroid sparing agent. So most of those DMARDs that we can talk more about, those tend to take six weeks to start working and three months to really fully kick in. And so you're relying primarily on steroids over that period of time, which is why you can't take them away too fast in those first two or three months. And then, of course, you don't want to leave patients on high-dose steroids for any longer than necessary. So after those three months, if they're on a medication that should be working, you're really working to remove those steroids still gradually so you don't cause adrenal insufficiency and you don't induce a flare, um, but being conscientious about not leaving patients on steroids unnecessarily. You asked also about the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic medications, the DMARDs. Um, so methotrexate, mycophenolate, and azathioprine are sort of the, the three pillars, the three most common ones for us to use, and they have been studied over decades and used in many children uh, quite safely. Fortunately, children actually are less likely to experience the infectious complications that adults often do, and so they are uh, fairly safe in, in children. And you mentioned that there's certain DMARDs that you would uh, reach for in very specific presentations. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So usually the most severe manifestation is what's going to dictate your choice. So actually, if somebody has inflammation of the brain, whether they're having seizures from their lupus cerebritis or they're having paralysis from a transverse myelitis inflammation of the spine, those patients are going to get cyclophosphamide pretty much universally. You know, do not cross go, do not collect $200, cyclophosphamide. If a patient has lupus nephritis, significant inflammation of the kidney, there are two clear front runners for first-line therapy at cyclophosphamide again, or mycophenolate. And so we will almost always pick between one of those two. If the patient is fortunate enough to not have inflammation of the brain or the kidney, that's where you get to have more options. And so, you know, there's a list of several that work for skin and several that work for joints and several that work for cytopenias. And then it's sort of a game of, well, which symptoms do they have and which medication can you find that will cover all of those various manifestations? And it sounds like that's a good rheumatological question is based on these symptoms, which DMARD is of choice? I usually consult a rheumatologist before I start cyclophosphamide, but I think uh, well it sounds like that's a safe bet. Good, good. Great. And just to uh, teach back or kind of to, to close the loop to make sure I understand, it sounds like, you know, when we have a new diagnosis, we're starting, my, uh, we're starting the hydroxychloroquine almost as the immediate first line maintenance dose. We're starting with high dose steroids 
dosing depending on what the symptoms are to address the acute concerns that kind of brought the presentation with the plan to taper to a DMARD. And then throughout their rest of their life and their course, we expect that there may be some flares and those would be treated with additional steroid courses. Is that kind of the general trend of, of a lupus patient going forward? It depends a little bit on the patient. And again, if you're going for that goal of remission, you may be able to taper them off of the DMARD and they may do well for years potentially. And if they have another flare, you sort of repeat the whole concept. Hopefully you can catch the flare much sooner than the initial diagnosis, right? It may have taken months to figure out what they had happened in the first place. But now that everybody knows that they have lupus, they know what symptoms to recognize that they're lupus. Hopefully you would catch it much, much earlier. Therefore, you could use less steroids, get them right back on the medication that you knew worked well for them in the past, and therefore be able to taper off of the steroids faster. I was also wondering, sort of going back to Mallory's case, you've already mentioned lupus nephritis. Could you tell us sort of more of an overview about how the kidneys can be affected in in lupus and apart from lupus nephritis, what other renal manifestations you do see? Sure. Um, Kidney involvement is one of the things that worries us the most. So I'm not a nephrologist, but I am the first to say your kidneys are very important. And one of the things we really worry about in lupus patients is actually progression to end-stage renal disease, needing either dialysis or a transplant. So we take lupus nephritis very seriously. It can also be problematic even if you don't have progression to scarring or loss of kidneys in the sense that these patients can get nephrotic. They can have profound swelling and all of the complications and frustrations that come with that. Um, We also see a lot of hypertension from patients who have their kidneys affected, even if there isn't a bump in the creatinine uh, and even if they don't develop frank nephrotic syndrome. And when we're screening for kidney disease in kind of a general population, we look at creatinine, obviously, or estimated GFR, and that can kind of help see if someone's having decreased function. But we can also find um, microalbuminuria. We can find protein in the urine. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do a two-part question. But one, what's the, the easiest way other than the obvious uh, creatinine bump? Are there other more subtle ways to identify kidney involvement? And if so, is it an automatic biopsy with any kidney involvement with underlying lupus? Great questions. Uh, So we hate to recognize lupus nephritis at the stage of a bump in creatinine. It's a very late finding, and it usually means that there's some degree of kidney damage that will not be recovered. Even if we can get their creatinine back to normal, their creatinine clearance probably still isn't normal. So definitely something we want to avoid and catch much earlier. So every time I see a lupus patient, every visit, I get a urinalysis with microscopy. So being able to see whether or not there are cells is a helpful indication of inflammation. And even though a dip will give you urine protein, right, you can see proteinuria 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus, you might not see it or it might indicate trace and be sort of neglected if you don't get a quantified urine protein to creatinine ratio. Some people will tell you in a textbook that the gold standard is a 24-hour urine test and pretty much in practicality, nobody does that because it's extremely challenging and probably doesn't give you much more information than getting a spot random urine protein to creatinine ratio. So we look not just specifically at the microalbumin, but in this case, we want all of the protein. Uh, And so a UPC is a test I order on every lupus patient every time. And different people are going to have different thresholds for when you'll biopsy. If you do not know if the patient has lupus nephritis. It's a brand new patient. Common threshold is 500 or 0.5, depending on whether you're saying milligrams or grams. And so above that, we would likely choose to biopsy the patient. When the patient has known lupus nephritis and then has a flare where their 
UPC goes up a little bit. You can't biopsy them every time. You might be biopsying somebody every every other month. Um, and so our, our threshold goes up for when we might opt to to get another biopsy since we already know that they have lupus nephritis. And I know you mentioned mycophenolate and cyclophosphamide as treatments. So I imagine if there's concern for that, those are the treatments you would start. But can you talk about, are there other classifications of lupus nephritis or other ways to measure severity and what that's like? Yeah, we classify them with classes, actually, class one through six. It is an incredibly confusing schema that is really the bane of pediatric rheumatologists' existence, probably nephrologists, until like about a year into their fellowship training. And then finally, a light bulb goes off and you kind of get it. So take class five out of the system for the moment. And then the progression between one and six is a progression Mm -hmm. of worsening. So one and two are really mild and may not need therapy directed specifically at Mm -hmm. the kidney. Three is concerning, and that's where we say somebody's going to need mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide. Four is worse than three, and six indicates significant scarring. It's You're not going to fully recover, and it's very worrisome. In fact, if it's a lot of six, sometimes the kidneys are basically gone, and it's not even treatable. So that progression is straightforward. I don't know why they did this, but five is a completely different axis. It is not talking about proliferative lupus nephritis. It's talking about um, actually deposits on the opposite side of the basement membrane, and it really is more a measure of how much protein you're going to lose in a process that is much more like, uh, it's not the same as minimal change, but that's sort of the concept. It's a protein-losing disease. So you can actually have five alone, or you can have three plus five, or four plus five, Hmm. or six plus five. Don't ask me why they named it that way. (laughs) And is the only way to determine the classification via biopsy? Unfortunately, yes. You can make some guesses. If somebody has a ton of protein and no cells, that's more consistent with five. They have a lot of cells. You're worried about three and four, but the only way to know for sure is to biopsy. I was wondering, other than lupus nephritis, are there any sort of other serious but somewhat common complications of lupus that that we should be aware of? Sure. Uh, The kidneys and the brain are the ones that worry us the most, um, and they have their own lists of concerning complications. So the brain in particular, patients in addition to just having generalized inflammation of the brain are at risk for seizures or psychosis, which definitely fall under the umbrella of CNS lupus. They can also develop catatonia, strokes, transverse myelitis. Those are some of the ones that worry me the most. Transverse myelitis can cause potentially permanent paralysis if you don't catch it early enough and treat it aggressively enough. And then um, we see sometimes seizures due to press, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Uh, So that's definitely a concerning condition. Um, In the kidney, we talked about how you can get malignant hypertension in addition to electrolyte abnormalities and then ultimately end-stage renal disease. And then there's a lot of other serious conditions that can involve all of the organ systems. So uh, cardiorespiratory, I worry about cardiac effusions that can lead to tamponade. Uh, You can actually get inflammation on valves that can lead to problems down the road. Uh, Patients are at uh, risk for advanced coronary artery disease and can actually have MIs decades before you might expect somebody to be able to have a heart attack. Um, in terms of hemonc, you can see very severe cytopenias. They're hypercoagulable, so you can see PE. Catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, which has a very high mortality rate um, and can overlap with lupus. And then uh, macrophage activation syndrome is another one of the ones that seriously concerns us, has a very high mortality rate and needs to be treated extremely aggressively. And it looks a lot like sepsis with DIC, but 
the CRP will be very elevated and the ESR will be either normal or only minimally elevated. So that a discrepancy or a discordance that's really very helpful at pointing towards MAS. And if somebody thinks about it, getting a ferritin is helpful. You'd expect to see a very, very high ferritin. And then there's a handful of other lab findings. The LDH should be a little bit high. The LFT should be a little bit high, the triglycerides. And it's definitely a heterogeneous syndrome in the sense that you don't have to have all of those things, just sort of a collection of enough of those things. So when we have a patient with lupus that maybe is a new diagnosis with an acute exacerbation, and we get them set up on steroids, they're feeling better, the dust is starting to settle Are there screening labs or other health maintenance that we should be doing for these patients? Is everyone that has lupus, are you testing them for antiphospholipid syndrome? Are there other things that we should be monitoring to uh, identify their risk? I don't know. Should we be doing um, coronary artery calcium scoring or other kind of uh, uh, statins early on? Like, What's kind of health maintenance look like for these people knowing that there's at risk for other complications? Absolutely. So uh, you don't need to order the antiphospholipid antibodies. As I mentioned, those can be you know $3,000 worth, and I promise we should take care of that on your behalf. We do typically check lipids and have a lower threshold for starting a statin. So lupus is considered sort of the coronary artery equivalent of diabetes in the sense that a patient could have up to a 50-fold higher increased risk. And so we probably have a more stringent lipid goal for these patients. That said, I wouldn't expect you in isolation to be starting somebody on a statin. What's the threshold for a 12-year-old? We don't really have great data on that anyway. There are, however, several things you absolutely can do if you are a general pediatrician and you are treating a lupus patient in your primary care clinic. So number one is vaccines. Patients with lupus are at an increased risk for infection, particularly infection caused by strep. And down the road, they're at an increased risk for HPV-related malignancies. So if you can make sure that they get their flu shot, their COVID shot, their pneumonia shots, their HPV shots, I mean, all the things that they're due for anyway. All the shots. uh, All the shots, please. Uh, That is super important in a lupus patient. Infection is actually one of the highest causes of death in lupus patients. So that's really important. I would also add to that list sunscreen. So sunburn can actually flare lupus. And so we really try to harp on it. And you can help us with that, uh, that it's important for them to have sun protection. And then contraception. So a lot of our medications are teratogenic. So preventing unplanned pregnancies in these patients, especially if the disease is active, it can actually be difficult both for the developing fetus, lots of uh, pregnancy complications, and for the mother, but also in terms of being on these teratogenic medications. So that's really important. And then finally, the risk of anxiety and depression is very high in these patients. And so helping to manage that is supremely helpful. Uh, We know that depressed patients don't take medications. And so if they are experiencing significant depression, they're more likely to come off their medications, they're more likely to flare. And so helping to treat that is super important. And I I know that you sort of have special experience and that, that you run a clinic for you know young adolescents and young adults with lupus and help them transition to care and medicine. I imagine especially teenagers with such a, a complex, serious, chronic multi-system disease and you know treatments that might be hard for them to tolerate. I'm sure there's lots of issues that come up. What do you find? Um, in your clinic and in your practices, sort of a common problems that pediatric lupus patients encounter with the transition into adult care? 
Yeah, this has been demonstrated across disease processes. So it's true for lupus and for other serious rheumatic conditions, and it's true for IBD, and it's true for sickle cell disease. But nearly 50% of patients will fall out of care when they are transferred. It's a pretty staggering statistic. Um, of those who fall out, about half just never show up for a first visit. Half do show up for a first visit and then don't come back, don't get integrated into care. So I am constantly trying to work on what can we do on both sides of the equation? How can we better prepare adult providers for that first visit? What can they do that will help develop good rapport and put the patients at ease and give them confidence and bring them back? And what can we do on the pediatric side to help prepare patients and families for what to expect at that first visit to make that more livable? And one of the analogies that I use is it's that first visit, sort of like a first date, it's going to be awkward. And if somebody tried to compare after they've been in a relationship for 10 years to the first date, right? The, the worlds of difference, they can never be comparable. So if you think about a patient who got diagnosed at age 12 with lupus and followed with their pediatric rheumatologist for 12 years and then transferred and showed up to a first visit and said, I don't feel as comfortable with this doctor. This is not the doctor for me. And the same is going to be true as they transfer out of pediatrics and go see an internist for the first time. So it's kind of talking them through that, I think it's it's very understandable. If you like break it down, a patient and a family can get it and you can convince them, please give that doctor several visits, give them a real try at forming a relationship with them. And that if there are bumps in the road, if that is not the right doctor, if there is a problem to reach back out to you so that you can help troubleshoot. And a lot of times it's just common expectation things. So visits are shorter on the adult side. And so they might be like, that doctor was so rushed, you know, like they had me out of the room in 15 minutes. You can explain, well, that's that's not really the doctor. That's sort of the process and not to hold the provider accountable for system differences. And the more we can prepare them about what to expect and differences in the system, the better. I think that's a tough part with any chronic disease. And so I think these are helpful tips. One other question I have is they transition to adulthood and what their life is going to look like later on. Again, if the flares uh, continued, do you provide any counseling about future flares? Are there ways to prevent it? You know, are there are there triggers, whether it's stress, hyperglycemia, pregnancy? What's your counseling like for someone with a new diagnosis to understand how their disease process may look in the future? Sure. Most of the patients are more concerned with the short term and not thinking towards the long term, but you definitely have patients who do want to know about the long-term prognosis. So staying on hydroxychloroquine is extremely helpful in that process, and that is going to reduce the risk of flare. So setting up the expectation that I'm going to try to minimize your medications, but hopefully staying on that one long-term. I think other things to know is that a patient can have a safe pregnancy, provided it is a planned pregnancy. And so it's actually extremely important that they be in communication with their doctors about when they are wanting to start a family and extremely careful about contraception before that time. So you uh, want to have good control of your lupus before getting pregnant. We usually try to say a minimum of six months of remission and good disease control and need to be on pregnancy compatible medications. So if we've been using mycophenolate to treat somebody's lupus nephritis, and they say, hey, the time has come, I'm newly married, I want to start a family, make sure we have a year's leeway, a year's notice, and we can then very safely, gradually transition them from mycophenolate to azathioprine, which is safe in pregnancy. Obviously, I can do a rush job of that if they say, I'm getting pregnant next month, or I'm already pregnant. Um, But the more advanced notice they can provide, the better and smoother the process will be. 
So, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, we do see some differences in the incidence of lupus in African-American or black populations. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how racial and socioeconomic disparities affect children with lupus overall. Absolutely. I think this is an extremely important question. We know that patients who are of low socioeconomic status, patients living in poverty, are more likely to develop lupus, and we know that they are more likely to have a severe disease course. So they're more likely to accrue damage over the course of their disease. So some of that we understand. Living in poverty means it's difficult to get your medications, it's difficult to get transportation to your visits, and that's all going to result in worse disease outcomes. But some of it I think we don't understand. Um, you know, why is it that adverse childhood experiences, why is it that poverty lead to an increased incidence in lupus? We don't fully understand that, but it's very important for us to try to tease out. That's fascinating that uh, adverse childhood events increase incidence of lupus. There's actually a lot of research into that in particular right now and trying to understand the relationship. So there's some epidemiological data that's a little bit ambiguous, but uh, for the most part, we think that yes, they do. Wow. Fascinating. Very, very interesting. So we've talked a lot about kind of the general approach of when we should be looking at considering lupus in, in certain patients. We talked about the different criterias and how they have specific things we can look for in the exam, some laboratories and physical exam findings. And we've talked about not only treatment, but some of the complications that we can see along the live course of a patient with lupus. With all this information, you know, what do you think the main take-home points are for listeners wanting to learn more about lupus? Sure. I'd give three. I'd say the first is understanding the role of the ANA, that it's extremely sensitive for lupus and very, very low specificity. So if you don't have a positive ANA, don't have lupus. So probably sensitivity between 95 and 99%. That said, 15 to 20% of healthy children have a positive ANA. So the specificity could not possibly be lower. And not to scare any families that the ANA is positive, therefore they have lupus. Um, number two, if you are concerned for lupus, look up the classification criteria. You can use any of the three that are uh, published out there right now, and that is what's going to guide your history. It's going to guide your physical exam, and it's going to tell you which labs to order to make the diagnosis. The only ones I would probably pause on are those antiphospholipid antibodies because they are so expensive. You can leave that sort of as confirmatory testing to be performed by the rheumatologist, but the rest of them, I think, are very appropriate if you have a high index of suspicion for lupus. And the third is that lupus is a very heterogeneous disease. So there are some people who will have a blessedly mild course, and there are some patients who are going to have extremely severe disease with potentially devastating complications. So if you have a known lupus patient who you are seeing and you are worried, please don't worry alone. Please reach out to that patient's pediatric rheumatologist and discuss your concerns to facilitate care. And I was wondering, just to wrap up, if you have anything that you would like to plug or any resources that our listeners should check out. I wish I was interesting enough to have something to plug. <laughs> I will remind to go listen to the P-Gals, but that's about it. Go ahead. You can say. I, yeah, I was going to say the P-Gals. I think that was a great, that was a great plug. I made a note to go check it out myself, so I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, P-Gals are great. I, uh, the one thing that we didn't talk about in this episode that we have in the Curbsiders episode for Internal Medicine is the EULAR, the European U, uh, Ular, yeah. Union, yeah, the League Against Rheumatism, the best national organization name, though I think it might be changed, but it's the European League Against Rheumatism. Is that right? Ular, yeah. 
It sounds like superheroes. Um, I can't let that go. I, uh, I've been thinking about it all, all episode. Um, this has been great. I, I am really appreciative. I think this was a great kind of very simple, wonderful way to talk about an otherwise complicated disease and a very easy approach to pediatric lupus. We got to have you back for some of the other rheumatological diseases because I thought they were all the same. I thought it was all the same black bots. We'll have to go through each one one by one now. Um, but this has been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. We're grateful to have you. Thank you for coming on to the show. An absolute pleasure, and thank you for having me. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Jennifer Chisholm, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Jennifer Chisholm. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.